The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. With expertise in more than 60 categories of collecting, its specialists will connect you with your passion. Find what defines you at bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the first Art Newspaper Podcast of 2019. I'm Ben Luke. Later this week we'll look at the big art events coming up this year, from museum openings to biennials to the big anniversaries and exhibitions. But first this week, a discussion on the art market. At the end of last year, we gathered three leading figures from different fields in our London studio to ponder the current situation in the market and to consider its future. We were joined by Victoria Siddle, the director of the Freeze Fairs, Francis Uhtred, then in his last days as head of post-war and contemporary art at Christie's, and the art dealer Tadeus Ropak. Georgina Adam, a regular contributor to the art newspaper and the author of the art market expose's Big Bucks and Dark Side of the Boom, joined me to ask the questions. So thank you very much for joining us, everybody. I wonder if we might start just by going around the room and if you could introduce yourselves. Uh, well, my name is Tadeusz Ropak. I have uh, galleries in Paris, in Salzburg and since last year also in London. I'm Georgina Adam, editor-at-large at the art newspaper. Hello, I'm Francis Uhtred. I am the chairman and head of post-war contemporary art at Christie's uh, Europe, Middle East, Russia and India. Hi, I'm Victoria Siddle. I'm director of the Freeze Art Fairs. Uh, so that's Freeze London, Freeze Masters, Freeze New York and now Freeze Los Angeles. I wonder if we might begin by saying what we think are the sort of most significant events of the year in the art market. Tadeus, we start with you. I think I would think the recognition of African-American artists. I think this was outstanding and overdue and I think it really stands for 2018. And are you seeing that both in the gallery and in the institutional world, more exhibitions as well as more interest from your collectors? Um, definitely. I think you can you can really see the change of interest and uh, I think on every level, you know, museums, of course, you know, and uh, gallery shows, um, auction results. I think the interest um, went, you know, on, on, on every part of the art market, but also the art world. <laughs> is there any indication whether that is being led by museums or is it a sort of tandem between both the market and museums? I think it's a tandem, but I think led by museums also. I think you could really feel in 16 and 17 that in the programs of museums, um, African-American artists got the special attention and... Um, and as I say, it was overdue in a way. When I think 30 years ago, we had at the Centre Pompidou in Paris this exhibition, uh, Measures de la Terre, which the then director almost lost his job over this, looking into all these corners of the world and giving a lot of attention to these artists. And it was too early and the adult did not react. And it became, and he stayed for many years to come still a very male, European-American dominated art world. And finally it changed and it got its place deserved, yeah. Um, I think that uh, in the auction business, we've seen um, the uh, coming to market of some very significant collections, uh, a lot of these great historic collections that have been uh, built over the last uh, century, um, and uh, the, the collectors themselves passing away has, has led to some major, major uh, collection sales. I'm thinking particularly of the Rockefeller Collection in New York in May and the Ebsworth Collection in uh, in November uh, in New York, um, we've seen you know very significant works by these from these collections. Also, Cy Newhouse 
sold one piece at auction in in, in November, but uh, a couple of other works have been sold privately from his collection after he passed. So we've seen uh, the evolution um, of some major collections in the marketplace, um, which I think is generating a lot of interest um, from the new collectors who are learning from those historic uh, aspects and positions and developing new approaches. Something I've been very happy to see is the repositioning of women from throughout history um, in both the marketplace but more importantly institutionally. Um, And of course this is something that's been growing over the past few years but this year has felt particularly important um, and the fact that at this moment you can see an incredible show of Hilma F. Klimt at the Guggenheim um, Annie Albers at Tay Modern um, I think shows the seriousness with which um, especially that generation of women artists are being taken now There was a sense when the Tate launched its switch house that there was a very deliberate sense in which they said we are expanding modernism <laughs> you know we are venturing into areas we should have ventured into a long time ago and now it's a kind of corrective how sort of deliberate is is the fact we the fact that we've talked about african-american artists and women in just now it seems to me that there is there's much just much more of a conscious deliberate act to restore a balance going on rather than a sort of organic process that's absolutely true. And I think it's it's incredibly important that institutions lead the way on this. And Tate has obviously taken it extremely seriously. Um, we have a Tate fund um, for the curators there to buy work at Freeze each year. And one of the works they bought was by Sonia Boyce, um, a really important series of photographs that they added to the Tate collection, um, which was an interesting choice of everything they could have in the fair, but I think shows that commitment. Uh, Victoria, can you talk to us a little bit about what you saw in the fair landscape? Particularly, MCH announced that it was withdrawing from its regional fair group. Uh, have you? Was this a surprise? Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Um, I think I mean, it's an interesting moment for fairs. You know, we do hear from galleries that there are a lot of them, potentially too many in the world, and I'm sure MCH hear the same thing. Um, so when we took the decision to launch Freeze LA, we decided, partly due to the venue actually, to keep it small. Um, it's only 70 galleries compared to nearly 200 in Freeze New York. Um, but actually the response to it was overwhelming. Um, so many galleries wanted to participate, people are enthusiastic to attend. Um, I think it's going to be an incredible week in LA. But that was a very interesting response given what we'd heard previously. So I think um, the appetite is still there for something that feels fresh and exciting. Um, But of course, you know, galleries have choices to make, collectors have choices to make. So I think we all, as people running fairs, have to work that bit harder to keep them fresh, to keep them exciting and to keep them feeling like a place you have to visit every year. Another question I wanted to ask you was about uh, collectors. Are you seeing a change in the collectors that you're seeing coming in? Uh, Francis, you talked about the works of art that came on and particularly the collections. Who are you seeing, and particularly who is new or unexpected in this this year that's ending? I think we've seen, a, uh, in, you know, in my 20 years in the auction business, it's an ex- extraordinary sea change. In, in the way that the auction houses conduct their business with collectors. So when I first came in, it was very much about selling to dealers who would sell to their collectors. And those dealers were mostly Western, American, European principally. And as, as we've evolved over these 20 years, we have gone much more towards the private collectors. 
and started to to investigate these various parts of the world which are growing and uh, you know Asia has been a very predominant um, uh, growth field for us in the past uh, particularly in, in in the post-war field in the last six or seven years in the impressionist field uh, a bit longer but they are really now taking over the impressionist field in many ways we've seen sales where 30% of the sale has gone to Asia um, and uh, the growth of mainland China has become more and more important. We've seen the art fairs building up in Hong Kong. We've seen, obviously, also the Middle East has been very active. Um, Latin America was strong, is is less strong now. And we're beginning to think about Africa. Um, Africa is becoming a, is a growing continent, uh, uh, obviously a very unexplored continent. Uh, a lot of artists are now being inspired to, to, to take their careers as, as artists in the field. Um, museums are beginning to, to, to appear. And so I think that is the future, possibly. Um, and, you know, we've just finished this round of sales in Hong Kong uh, last week, um, which maybe weren't as strong as, we, as we'd hoped for, but they're still selling, you know, um, uh, uh, 1.5 billion Hong Kong dollars of, of, of art and objects in Hong Kong in one week. And uh, the rise of China, you know, I was in Shanghai um, and Beijing in September, and I went to witness the the West Bund in Shanghai, which is this area of deserted land which is now home to and soon will be home to five at least five museums um, uh, of different kinds um, and this really sort of shows you the the growth of interest and the way that the these countries want to harness that interest. I then also think that you 're seeing that beginning to seep into the marketplace the growth of interest in the marketplace in artists like George Kondo and Cause is really driven by young Asian collectors who are very keen and, and respond to the iconography of these Western artists. Hmm. And Tadeus, collectors. Well, I can just say it's the same experience you just described. And um, what we think is that collectors become more sophisticated, more educated. And, you know, people always feel the art world is becoming more shallow and that, um, you know, the investment investment aspect is becoming, taking over. But I really think it is not the case. I feel we are more and more uh, working with collectors who really do their homework, who are really in there with knowledge and with passion. And um, also in Asia, I, th I have to say, you know, for a long period of time, we felt Asian collectors, are they, they understand the market, but not the art world. And I think they're learning. And, you know, we were caught by surprise, you know, at the beginning of this year, a new museum in Shanghai opened with an exhibition of Joseph Boys. You know, we represent the estate. They did not contact us. You know, we went there, we met and the, the, the collector who opened this museum and we spoke to him and you know, he just learned about boys. It was a modest show. Um, he found works, you know, mostly editions. But just the fact that he went into something um, so um, sophisticated and difficult to understand where you really have to bring yourself into the universe of an art, European artist who um, cannot be understood and is not a household name there yeah. was astonishing. And the seriousness, how he approached it and... Uh, um, and he had no contact to any, you know, German or European museum or gallery. He just did it on his own and he opened his museum. I think it's a big statement. So experiences like this um, 
uh, really make us feel that uh, the art world on one side is driven by this investment idea and it is sometimes scary and we sometimes feel it might take over but at the end I I'm not afraid of it anymore because I think it, it is always still driven with passion and with knowledge and in these new markets I think you know they are trying to really learn and what you mentioned with the West Point I think it is astonishing you know I think you know we know these collectors who are opening these museums and they're taking it very serious they are trying to do exhibitions really on a very you know important level by bringing in artists who are not only household names there but really trying to teach their community to have an educational program to art invite artists for talks and doing trying the european american model but really bringing it you know within their own language and i think this is astonishing i think from what you're saying there are intriguing possibilities about alternative canons arriving arriving all over the world so you have Western and non-Western artists intermixed in this very creative way in very different sites. Do you feel that there is a sense in which there are collectors who are very much cross-pollinating the artists that they're collecting? Or do you think there are artists are very much working within a more specialist field? I think you have really every different model. And it's good like this, I think, you know. Uh, you know, for a while we had, especially in America, uh, you had the feeling that uh, people had the wish list and the wish list was very much the same and people were working down their, their wish list and this was almost copied in. And sometimes we were laughing when, you know, new collectors arrived with the same ideas of how to look at art, how to collect art and how to even show art. And I think this changed also. And especially in, in Asia and in places like this, I think it became very diverse and uh, and this kind of new developments which has discussed before they're already really part of their discussion you know we had a show in London here of three women artists uh, last summer of Rosemary Castoro and uh, Lydia Okumori you know, artists who were hardly known and the response in Asia was incredibly curious about this and yeah working on for some of these artists for some projects there. So I think it, it became very diverse, and I think this makes it even more interesting and more sophisticated. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think what you're saying is, is very relevant, and I think that's probably one of the key uh, characteristics of our time is this real destabilization of what art history means. You know, I grew up, and I think we, do, we grew up, um, with this very kind of secure canon of what art history was and specifically the 20th century which was you know already well documented and beginning to to grow and um all of these ideas have been blown apart in the last 20 in the last 15 years i would say you know uh, we're starting to question whether whether our idea of art history is the correct idea of art history and and we're constantly being exposed to artists of the past who were being reanalyzed and who were maybe even buried uh, and, and not really uh, thought of. And suddenly they're being reimagined in these new worlds that we're seeing. And that's partly to do, I think, with uh, the improvement of curatorial studies at museums and, and the growth of museums who are looking for new angles and new ideas. But I think it's also partly to do with the the growth of collecting. Um, there are so many more collectors nowadays from all over the world who are expanding this this field and 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 bringing their own uh ideas 
And I think the, the conversations that are going on in small towns in the middle of nowhere all over the world are beginning to contribute in a much more direct way than they ever have done. It used to be very city-based. Now I think we're seeing these conversations all over the world beginning to, to change the art history. And this is impacting on the museum curators who are building these the wings like we saw at the Switch building. And the Middle East is coming to the conversation, Asia is coming to the conversation, not just the collectors, but the artists from those regions. And I think that, that is a really big characteristic of our time. And we, as a result of this, are reanalyzing who the big figures of the past were. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the major figures are being reassessed in, in, in the context of, of the newer figures that are coming out. Well, if I may add to this, and it's really absolutely true what you're saying. And, uh, you know, also European and American museums, they're trying also to reassess their interest and their serious interest in it. If you would have 10 years ago looked at the Tate or the Pompidou in Paris, and, you know, they had a kind of very clear way looking at contemporary art. You know, they were looking at European art, American art, and the rest of the world. Today, you have, like, in these major museums and in smaller museums now more and more developing these committees, you know, this Eastern European art, Asian art, African art, and these committees, they're very serious. They have, like, a curatorial leadership. They're really traveling. They're meeting these artists. I think artists are taking much more serious from all these, you know, parts of the world and and uh, and this reassesses you know the importance of um, artists from all these different parts yeah uh, I'd like to move on because we've done the easy bit now we're going to do the <laughs> difficult bit which is let's look forward uh, I think one thing here we're doing making this recording in London and obviously something that's hanging over is brexit I think we need to talk a bit about how Brexit will affect London and London's art market, which is, as we know, the second or the third largest, depending on how you count, uh, market in the world. We we should say that we're recording this at the end of November, and when people hear this, it will be January. Who knows <laughs> what might have happened in, in the Brexit world uh, in that interim period, but let's have a go at, at estimating what might happen. Maybe we can look at a, a couple of different scenarios of Brexit and how they might affect us. I mean, speaking in November, as we are now, um, it would be great to think the government knew what Brexit meant, let alone us <laughs> around this table. Um, but I think, I mean, from, from a London perspective, um, this feels like an incredibly international city that can withstand this kind of change. Um, we're still seeing galleries from outside the UK coming and opening in London. Um, I mean, today, I think you opened your gallery last year, mm-hmm. was it? Um, and uh, Max Hetzler's just opened a gallery here. You know, this is something that's been happening a lot over the last few years, but it's still happening even up to a couple of weeks ago, um, which shows real confidence in the city and the market here. Um, long may that last. <laughs> well, you know, I think the art world really left geopolitical borders long time ago and lives on its own terms and, uh, you know, politics and, uh, yeah, borders are just don't exist. You know, they don't exist for artists, not for collectors, not for curators or museum directors. So um, I think we are in this very privileged world where we live outside this kind of uh, geopolitics. And um, I think... London, and we really carefully thought about it, you know, the decision to come to London was really when Brexit was already 
kind of in the picture. Um, and I really think that the dynamic of this place is critical mass on one side. So I think you have so many important artists coming here uh, still. You have so great artists living here. I think you have very functioning ac academies who are still influencing a new generation of artists. Um, you have like museums who are part of the best in the world and in every field. Um, I'm not so worried about this. I'm, you know, we are very upset that England is leaving this idea of a united Europe. Um, but I think London as, a, as an art world place and as an art market, they're two different things, will survive this. Yeah. I think it's, it's a state of mind, yeah. it's, you know, as, as well as a market. Um, and that is something we can preserve. I mean, I absolutely agree with you, uh, Tadeus. I think that the, um, you cannot see London in isolation. But I think what's also interesting is that the Brexit is just one of a number of things that are happening around the globe at the moment, you know, uh, whether it be the uh, China-America trade war, whether it be the destabilization of the Middle East, um, and the changes in, that are happening in China under President Xi. I think that these are all aspects which will change, no doubt, the geopolitical landscape and will have an impact on where people live and work and decide to spend their lives. But I think also um, the L London's uh, situation at the centre of the, of the art world has not been about necessarily people living in London. It's been about a trading centre. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of this is to do with how will London ev evolve as a trading centre. And actually, whatever I think about Brexit... This could give an enormous opportunity to the art market in London uh, through what is negotiated in, in this divorce agreement. And you know, there are aspects like import and export. What will be the import tariff to bring works into London? Will it be at the same or less than Europe? You know, are, there, are there going to be um, real differences between trading in London versus trading in Europe? And I think that the fact remains that London is a great destination a place to live. Um, people love going to the restaurants here. And I've been here, I've lived here all my life, uh, 45 years, and the changes that have happened here have been incredible. And it's, there's no doubt the last 15, 20 years has been an extraordinary change in not just the cosmopolitan nature, but also the way that people live their lives here. Uh, the quality of life is, is, is stronger. The, the choice on offer for cultural events, for restaurants, for various things socially, has really transformed. And these things don't go away quickly. And I think that there's a real opportunity here for London to to take take advantage of the situation, um, much as I don't want to see us leaving uh, the European Union. Can I ask, though, about practical realities? Because we hear a lot about how a no-deal scenario would end up with massive queues on the roads to Dover uh, and coming in the other way. Do, organi do organisations, the three of you are sitting here work representing different organisations, are you having to plan for the eventuality of a, of a no-deal Brexit, which will unquestionably affect the movement of goods, the movement of art? We, we, we actually have a Brexit committee at Christie's and, and we are working through the plans. And, um, you know, I think we have to prepare for all, all eventualities. Um, it's going to carry on business as usual in London, and we have sales in February and March. 
And it's very important that we plan that we can serve our clients as well as possible and make sure that they feel comfortable buying in our, in our, in our sales. It's already a statement of, of, of dedication that we are going to carry on business as usual. And I think it's important that we allow – that's because we believe in the future of London as, a, as, a, as an art market and also because we want to be able to continue to serve our clients the way that they are used to. Um, we're a global event. Um, we have fairs in London and New York and L.A., um, for the London fairs, it's really it's a very international context where galleries from all over the world are bringing artists from all over the world and selling to collectors from all over the world. Um, and we're not buying and selling art ourselves directly. Um, so the concern isn't so much around freezers and events, um, but of course the galleries are incredibly important to us. So the London galleries are... Uh, the people we've been speaking to most about this. And actually, we held a roundtable um, last year when uh, Brexit was announced um, just to speak to galleries here about what they wanted and what would um, be the best possible scenario um, as a result of Brexit for them to be able to keep doing business um, at the same or even, as Francis said, even increased levels. Um, and, uh, and we took the outcomes of that and... Um, uh, took it to Matt Hancock then um, and uh, worked with us through SLAD and other lobbying bodies to make sure those messages were communicated. Um, but that was our main concern is just that, you know, that the London market, the people buying and selling art here were able to continue to do so um, with the same strength as, pre- as before. Um, Victoria, you've touched on the problem uh, which we've been seeing, which is of the smaller galleries mm. closing. I mean, this is something, even though the Art Basel report this year noted that there were more openings than closings. There were nevertheless a falling number of openings, which means that the closings are also going down. Um, and I wonder, I don't know whether Tadeus perhaps or any of you would like to comment a bit on this, this polarisation of the art gallery world. We've got very large galleries like yours, Tadeus. Um, Victoria are in touch with a lot of smaller galleries, um, I think virtually every day now I hear of a gallery that's closed. So what do we predict for 2019? I think something that has been interesting in 2018 is the opening up of this conversation about galleries and what it means to have a gallery. Um, And also this sort of redefining the different types of galleries. Um, Certainly as, you know, as, as for a fair director, we used to years and years ago just think of galleries. Now we don't think about just galleries anymore. There are young galleries, there are medium-sized galleries, there are big galleries, there are mega galleries, you know. <laughs> um, and they're completely different types of business and you can't group them together um, or treat them in the same way, essentially. Um, and, um, and so that's something we've been thinking about a lot and how we support galleries at those different levels and how we, you know, make the fairs work for them in different ways because they have different kinds of needs as well from us Hmm. um there was actually just wanted to mention one thing that i think marked that turning point was um a piece in the new york times there was a conversation between four gallery owners it was paula cooper sean kelly bridget donahue and elise de rosier um there was this very candid conversation about what it meant to have a gallery at this time um and what that future potentially looked like and it threw up a lot of interesting questions that you know that we've certainly taken really seriously and I think has, a lot of conversation has um, sort of come out of that. But have I got a prediction here? <laughs> a prediction of how the gallery landscape will change? Yes. I mean, I think, look, 
from my perspective, and I'm sure today's can speak better. This is somebody who has a gallery. Um, as fairs, we exist to support galleries. So I can speak to how we will change in order to, to support galleries at different levels. Um, Freeze LA, for example, which happens for the first time in February 19, uh, 2019, um, for the first time we will have a completely different pricing structure. So the, the booths in the main section will be priced differently per square metre according to their size. Mm. Um, it's a small thing, but it's something that reflects this, um, this difference in the, in the types of galleries that are there. Um, yeah, I think I would just really follow on what you are saying. I think we absolutely need this diversity of galleries. I think the art world cannot end up in only large galleries representing all kinds of artists, young, developing, you know, major estates and so I think we need this incredible ballad of, uh, you know, galleries who have all the very specific way looking at art and presenting art and working with artists. And what I have seen over so many years is that every generation also changes the way looking at art and working with artists, which is also very important. And so there's a development. There's not a model, and this model is constantly copied, but the model is changing. And um, if when I speak to very young colleagues who are just starting their galleries, they are really having a very different vision of how this gallery is should work and how artists should be within their dialogue. So I think what we have to do and the utmost to kind of keep these huge offerings of very different ways to look at art. We did a survey in Paris and, you know, the cultural minister invited some galleries from very different models to look at it. How is it functioning and how is a possible future? And I have to say, contrary to what we hear so much lately, is that there are still more galleries opening than closing, at least in Paris. So in Paris, and the same thing is in New York and hopefully also in London, is that you know galleries always find also a new area in the city. And in Paris, you could really feel this movement, you know, from the Marais, which was very important, you know, in the 90s when, when I also started my gallery in France. Um, it moved to the 13th, which is a bit in the outskirts where the you know, new big library opened. Then it moved to the 19th, which is a bit in the outskirts. Now you have like areas which we've never heard before and you have these grids. You know, you have like these this clusters of, of, of new galleries opening with the same passion than I remember when I started my gallery. And so I feel rather optimistic for what we are going to see um, because you cannot kill the gallery model. I think um, the fairs became very important to present art and um, somehow you felt it took over. I think now we have a more balanced situation coming where fairs will always stay very important and fairs are still, you know, going into new places like Los Angeles. We are all very excited to go there. Um, but I think galleries also, you know, the physical place to create an exhibition is still very important and hopefully will always be like this. You know, the, you know, for a while there were all this discussion that, you know, it would become a virtual experience. And I still believe very much in the physical experience of art and in the space, in the, in the you know, I think we do our utmost to create these spaces. And in a fair, you're still reduced to something very, um, you know, far from what the gallery, you know, actually 
you know, brings in as a space and as an experience. And um, so I f therefore think that the gallery model is definitely not that. And when you speak to the very young ones, then you feel this optimism. Mm. And you have maybe a kind of mid-level where there is some frustration because there, you know, big galleries maybe kind of developed so strong and this is maybe scary. Mm. And so therefore I think when you – I still hope that this this balance will – just bring in, you know, a new generation of artists and and galleries who kind of work. I mean, from from my perspective, the the gallery model is at the heart of of the auction of the of the of the art of the art world, and one of the great features of the growth of the art industry in the world is that more artists can choose the career as an artist nowadays than they ever have done. I, I haven't done a survey, but I would guess there are more active artists working today than there ever have been. As a result of that, I would also guess that there are more active galleries in the world than ever have been. So this discussion about whether there are the, the, the different levels of gallery is, is an important one. But I think the overall uh, message is that we are fostering more creative talent than we ever have done as a global uh, industry. And I think that the, the evolution from a small gallery to a medium gallery to a large gallery is a very interesting one. And how, how, do, they get to that, how, how do they get to those points? And what are the, the pivots to allow that to happen? The mega galleries and the large galleries in the world are still a relatively small proportion of the amount of galleries that we have in the world. Mm. And, you know, the point is, as long as the artists are being served and they are allowed to have a, have a platform and they are allowed to exhibit, that has to be a positive point. Now the question is, how do we allow, enable these younger galleries to grow so that there is in the future more experienced galleries, more experienced gallerists who are able to give to the next generation. That, I think, is the key challenge uh, for us as an industry moving forward because it's, it's no doubt to me that the artist-gallery relationship is at the centre of the art world. We heard earlier in the year from David Zwerner what's become known at the art newspaper as the Zwerner tax, which is, <laughs> um, which is this idea that the bigger galleries pay more in order to subsidise the smaller galleries. Victoria, has that, has that idea been floated and discussed in Freeze Towers? Um, I mean, in essence, it's something we've been doing for years because there are, I mean, there have been for years of three price levels at Freeze New York, for example. Um, the frame galleries, who are the youngest galleries, pay, I think, 60% less per square metre than galleries in the main section. Um, and then there's a kind of midway point, which is focus, where galleries can step up to the main section. They're paying 30% less. Um, and then the galleries with the big booths on the entrance pay a prime site fee, which is an additional percentage on top of their booth rental. So to an extent, it's in place already. Um, I think what that... Uh, that the sort of the Zverna tax conversation has also led to is this opening up of a conversation about what else? Um, and, you know, there have been some ideas suggested that may or may not ever kind of take hold, such as the, the football system of an artist leaving a gallery and going to a bigger gallery with a transfer fee. You know? <laughs> um, unlikely to take hold in the art market, but, it's, but these sort of ideas, I think, maybe will narrow down to something that is workable, that does present a way for that whole kind of ecosystem to flourish um, because so many of the artists that are now with big galleries did start with small galleries. Um, so they need each other, essentially. And uh, so, yes, I, I hope that sort of that support in either direction continues to grow and that conversation continues to grow. But that speaks to a kind of an ecosystem in terms of 
the gallery world, mm. which is curious in that there's so much informality and yet there's massive amounts of cash <laughs> swashing about. So is that a sustainable model? Um, I think the informality is part of its charm in, so, and part of its attraction for some people. I think to over-formalise it and make it into a financial market um, it would lose its appeal for a lot of the extraordinary people, including artists who are part of that world. Um, but um, but I think there are ways in which it can change and evolve that would be positive, for sure. Can I bring you on to a different topic now, which is the impact of technology, looking forward to next year? When I talk about technology, I'm talking obviously about artificial intelligence, the impact of artificial intelligence, but also um, the internet, uh, how do the three of you see this evolving? Is the internet going to have, it's obviously already important, but a much more important role in the future? I think that there's no doubt that technology um, has had a, an impact, a big impact on the art world in the last five to ten years specifically. I mean, probably it has historically always as, it, as it's evolved. But I think what we've noticed is... Um, Certain platforms uh, do different things. So if you look at um, Artnet or ArtPrice, databases have, have, have created more transparency in terms of pricing in the art world. Back in the old days, there used to be a book called, produced every year called Maya, which just had uh, reams of, of, of words, no pictures, and you could try to work out how, how much was paid for an artist in one year without even looking at the picture. And now you have full, fully catalogued all singing, all dancing images online that you can assess the value of an object and compare it with an object that you're also looking at to maybe purchase. So that's transformed the transparency of the art business. And I think that um, even galleries uh, will use auction database prices to show their clients this is a, 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 good, a good level to pay or to encourage the, uh, the level of the price. I think Instagram uh, has had a big impact as well. Um, in terms of showing the breadth of the art world, um, what you can see, uh, what you can do. Um, you know, for me, it was quite interesting. When, when my when my third child was born and I was feeding her milk in, in, in the evenings, I'd sit there looking at Instagram whilst feeding her and I could have this f huge FOMO uh, looking, at, <laughs> looking, at, looking at all the things that are going on in the world. But actually, I'm learning a lot from just looking at this one screen and seeing things that I would never see before. Of course, nothing ever beats being in front of the art, but the, the chance to actually look at exhibitions that are happening all over the world uh, is something very, very special, which can inform your understanding of the art market. And I think that, you know, we have also seen sales transacted through Instagram. Uh, we've sold paintings in the $25 million level uh, as a result of them being seen on Instagram. Uh, and that's privately, as well as at auction um, and Facebook. So... There's no doubt technology has a role to play, uh, and I think that role will carry on growing. Whether we go towards the War of the Worlds uh, approach and, and, and robots taking over from artists, I'm not sure about that. I think there's always got to be a certain humanity about the way that art is created. But I do think that we're going to see, continue to see technology growing uh, in its role in the art world. Um, I mean, there are two aspects to this, I suppose. And one is, the, is artists making... Um, art in other forms um, AI something you mentioned but also um, we're seeing more and more artists making VR pieces as well um, and it was interesting to see this year Daniel Birnbaum um, leaving his museum post to, to run Acute Art which is an artist VR company 
Um, and in fact, we've asked him, we've invited him to do something at Freeze New York around art and VR because I think there's so much interest in this and it feels sort of nascent but exciting for that reason. Um, and then the other aspect, of course, as Francis said, is, is Instagram um, and the way that without replicating the experience of seeing a show in a gallery or a work of art in person, um, it opens up the world. Um, and you can feel as if you know. It's more about the spread of information rather than replicating the experience of seeing an artwork. Um, but seeing what you want to see, you know, finding out um, what piques your interest in different parts of the world. Um, and I think the the reality of how much we all travel shows that, you know, it, it's never going to be just about seeing a picture on a screen. You know, we want to go and see things in person. We want to go and see people in person as well. Um, but um, But knowing what's out there in the world um, is something that I think social media has been incredibly helpful in. Um, and then WeChat in China as mm. well, the same thing. Oh, yeah. Just like that, that spread of information, the fact that you can now reach millions of people and tell them what you're doing in London um, is um, yeah, fantastic. We, WeChat is a vital tool for my Asian colleagues in, yep. in selling our auctions in, in, in to, to, our, to our Asian clients. It's, it's really a... Yeah, it's, it's everything. Yeah. <laughs> So we're coming towards the end, and I want a quick-fire um, question to each of you. What do you think is going to happen in 2019, the most important thing? What are you expecting? Well, I just expect that artists will do their best shows, producing their best art, and for our audience to really enjoy it. I see uh, enormous turmoil globally, politically, uh, and I'm very interested to see how that impacts what artists make what they do and how they how they respond to that and uh, I think that that will also lead to alterations in the way that the market is working um, but I think we're in a very interesting point in the world um, where the various large countries that dominate our world are all uh, gearing up for change uh, Europe is gearing up for change and historically we've always seen great art come out of great change uh, so I think that's going to be an interesting factor. Yeah. And to Francis' point about global turmoil, I think seeing the art world kind of rise above that and continue to, back to our first conversation, put on great shows by African-American artists and female artists and just, you know, continuing um, that work in the face of whatever else is happening in the world. And, uh, and the art world becoming more and more global. You know, we've talked so much about Asia um, and um, and the, the sort of the already incredibly global nature of the art world. I think the fact that we can kind of rise above general politics um, is, uh, is something to celebrate. Well, thank you all very much for joining us. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And you can read more on this conversation in the current print edition of the art newspaper. We'll be back with a look at the big art events in 2019 after this. The collecting bug can begin anywhere, at any time. For Pella Olive, whose outstanding collection of largely 17th and 18th century oak furniture and delfware comes to Bonhams in January, it was a childhood spent in his father's antique shop in England's West Country that kindled his interest in the past and the way we lived then. During his long collecting career, Pelham has made important contributions to scholarship and unearthed some fascinating pieces. One of these, to be offered at Bonhams in the Olive Collection Sale on the 31st of January, is an extraordinary 1650 early London Delfware drinking cup in the shape of a boot. 
Popular in their day, very few of these boots survived, and indeed, this is the only known example of its type. An inscription around the top of the boot reads, Oh my head. A timely reminder of the perils of overindulgence for anyone struggling with dry January. Find out more at bonhams.com. Welcome back. At the start of every year, we like to take a big look ahead of what's in store in the next 12 months. I'm now joined by Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent, and Jane Morris, a former editor of the art newspaper, who now writes for a number of different publications, to discuss some of the highlights of 2019. I thought we'd begin by talking about the big museum openings this year. Jane, any caught your eye? Okay, so I suppose the first one is the National Museum of Qatar, which is the Jean Nouvel uh, Design Museum in Doha. Uh, We don't have a price for it, but the New York Times speculated that it's a $450 million or so museum. And it's the one that looks like a sort of... um, array of spaceships or petals or even sequins. I think it's supposed to be the kind of crystalline forms that emerge on, you know, the floors of wadis when they dry out is the idea. Um, It's basically a museum of natural history and culture. So it's going to cover things like life at sea, uh, you know, pearl fishing, oil and gas, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, lots of details are still under wraps, but that's obviously a major project. It's interesting, of course, because Qatar is still subject to this blockade by some of its fellow uh, Middle Eastern countries. Um, But so far, it doesn't seem to be impacting on Qatar's desire to keep building museums and so on. And a kind of branding exercise too, isn't it, with the Nouvelle building being sort of Desert Lotus I heard about as well. So you can almost see it becoming like a logo for the country and a kind of another part of this whole cultural diplomacy with all the Emirate states vying with each other to be the coolest on the international scene. You know, architect, not a local architect, very significantly, I think, again. Yeah, and the themes do actually sound very interesting. I mean, it sounds like an interesting approach to museology, but obviously we need to wait to see it. Now, um, there were a number of interesting uh, museum openings in the US, and there are two that we'd like to focus on in New York. Firstly, uh, a really quite different sounding museum that you that really caught your eye, Jane. Yeah, well, I guess a lot of interest around the shed. Um, I think, especially for 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 those of us in Britain, actually, because most of us know its director Alex Poots as the director of the Manchester International Festival, commissioned some amazing projects like the Philip Pereno Hans Ulrich Obrist Il Tempo del Postino, which some of us will remember. Nina Abramovich, a go go, yes, exactly. Um, so basically, um, Alex is heading up this new project. It's in Hudson Yards, so it's near the High Line. It's the west side of New York, sort of Chelsea meatpacking district area. Um, And it's an extraordinary building. I mean, really extraordinary. It's a Diller, Scofidio and Renfro uh, design. It's basically a sort of mixed perform... It's not... Well, it's sort of a bit of everything, isn't it? It's not theatre space. It's not performing arts space, not concert hall. It's not an art gallery. It can be all of those. And it's got an outer shell that can change shape. It's on tracks. Its actual footprint can adjust according to what it's being used for. I like the idea that they want to use it for commissions for artists to make work that couldn't be made anywhere else. I mean, I'm particularly liking the sound of, you know... Gerhard Richter and Reich combo and a, a whole music concert done by Steve McQueen. You know, so I like this mixing up, which, of course, Alex Poots so pioneered at Manchester. Absolutely. Now coming to New York. It's, what's interests me is that it's like the, the form of the museum seems to match its content. It's this sort of shape-shifting mm. idea. And it's so that the people, the artists represented in it are doing things that out of their comfort zone, but also the museum itself is is shifting in its own way. It's and they sort of, are really yeah. trying to get different... I know every museum says it's trying to get different audiences. Every exhibition says that, but I feel that 
they genuinely are by making the building into a kind of an event in and of itself. Yeah, because as you said, the the, the shell retracts, so you can you can basically open up a huge plaza area. I actually saw it. It's still it was still being constructed. I saw it in September, and it's I mean it's a really remarkable statement building out on the edge of the Hudson Yards. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that Dilla Scofidio and Renfro are the, are the uh, architects for that and for the next project we're going to talk, talk about, which is MoMA and its extension. Now, the interesting thing for me is that it, it seems to me that we, we enter these periods where certain architects become almost like the royal architects, you know, to their of their time. And these guys really do seem to have cornered the museum market. Taken the, the mantle from Rem Coolhouse. Well, <laughs> indeed. I mean, you know, it, it feels like a shift, doesn't it? And, and they, you know, they've just been appointed to do the V&A East, the, the collection space there. They did the Broad in LA. So they are the preeminent architects of our age for museums. I, I think it's interesting with, with the MoMA extension that there's a lot of talk about, you know, again, flexible spaces. There are these atrium spaces that mesh it to the existing building but also performance, performance, performance. Everyone is banging on about performance at the moment. And I think, you know, these guys seem to be very good at making spaces that are versatile to accommodate that, which seems to be part of the MoMA new agenda as well. I mean, of course, you could say it's a bit of a lack of imagination on the part of trustees and museum directors because we have had these great waves in the past where suddenly everything's scary, suddenly everything's cool house. But I think it's also true that museums are quite complex buildings to create. So, of course, once someone's done one well and everyone understands that they're going to understand the challenges of museum space, then it does sort of make sense to go back to people. You need a safe pair of hands who's also going to do some kind of good design flourish. I think that's the thing, isn't it? And it's a lot of money being spent, exactly. The next project we're going to discuss feels to me to be more of a sort of museological project than a kind of um, bit great grand building project. Jane, the Humboldt Forum in Berlin, what, what is it, what is it and, and how significant is it? Well, I think, I mean, certainly from, from the point of view of Berlin, it's a, it's a really big deal and it's actually turning out to be I would say one of the most anticipated projects, but also one of the most controversial. Um, Again, for British listeners, uh, Neil McGregor, famously director of the British Museum for many years, was one of the three advisors involved in it. And this really goes back to the whole story of what happened to Berlin's museums in the Cold War. So basically, at the end of the Second World War, the collections were divided between East and West. And the Asian art collection and the ethnographic collection were moved out to the west of Berlin into the Dahlem suburbs. So basically this museum is going to bring those collections back into the centre of Berlin. There's also going to be exhibitions created by Humboldt University and also by the Berlin City Art Museum. So it's a museum that's going to mix art from other cultures and ethnography and we're being promised a very sort of exciting museology. What's causing the controversy, there's two things really. One is the building is on the site of the former Berliner Schloss, the former Berlin Castle. It's a really, really central place in Berlin. It was bombed in the Second World War and it was pulled down eventually by the East German government. On top of that space, they built a sort of Palace of the Republic, a great big modernist building, much loved by people in East Germany, but pulled down about 10 years ago. It was riddled with asbestos. But a lot of people feel that that was about erasing the East German history from the centre of the museum. So it's been 
unpopular and controversial in some quarters because of that. Do you think by uniting the collections from East and West, this is a sort of you know reparatory gesture as well? Or is it just seen as a museological thing? Well, actually, that, that process has been going on for the past uh, however many years, since 1989, so yeah. past 30 years. Yeah, yeah. This is kind of up, ups the ante by actually putting it all in that museum in that way, maybe. I, I, don't know. I think it's more the, the fact that Partly the argument about the building, because they've basically rebuilt the Berliner Schloss. They've rebuilt the, the, the former building. <laughs> Alarm with, bells going. <laughs> with, with on three sides. So the facade on three sides is the former Berliner Schloss. On the side against the spray is a modern facade. So there's, that is one issue. And the other issue, I think, is that this has got a lot of work from, Berlin, from Germany's colonial era. And because... <laughs> The, the Germans have spent so much time, absolutely understandably, addressing their w- w- Second World War past. There's been less focus on what they did in Africa. Now, of course, the collections in this museum are bringing that right up to the fore again. So as we say, uh, the museum in Doha will open in March. The shed opens in the spring. The extension to MoMA opens in the summer and then the Humboldt Forum opens in September. We've covered the market largely in the first part of this podcast, but we'll just discuss Freeze LA briefly because I think obviously Victoria will say positive stuff about it and she's obviously very optimistic about what's going to happen. What do we think about Freeze in LA and, and, and the the market there in, in California? Do we, do we feel in our bones it's going to be a success? I think it's an inevitable step given that Endeavour, the sports entertainment marketing enterprise that's taken over large shares in Freeze, now has such a big stake. LA is an obvious base for it to be. The fact that Freeze is occupying the Paramount Studios as well, so it's really in the heart of the film industry, which is still a working lot, I hasten to add, which is not without its complications, having an art fair crash landing in the middle of it. This is all an inevitable thing. So really, almost, it seems to me, that comes before the idea of whether there's actually a kind of indigenous market. I mean, most of the major buyers on the West Coast will go off to Freeze New York, will go off to Bar- Basel, will go off to Miami anyway. Of course, it's more convenient to do a one-stop shop at home, but I think it's about the sort of marketing of the brand with its new financial directors as much as anything else, to my mind. Yeah, I mean, I think they've got... I gather that they've got a pretty sort of impressive, like, welcoming host committee, uh, Salma Hayek's on it, and uh, Serena Williams apparently on it, and the mayor, Eric Garetti, the mayor of Los Angeles. Um, Having said that, I feel like I've spent 20 years uh, with people talking about how one day the LA market is going to take off, and maybe one day it indeed will. But uh, my feeling is that to some extent, we're still waiting. I mean, I certainly hear from the big museums there that it's been difficult getting back, you know, the sort of patronage that you get in New York or Chicago, which indicates that if the collectors are there, they're at a certain level and not at the, you know, the very sort of top level. Of course, there are some. There's um, a great art scene in LA, of course. Of course. You know, fantastic, vibrant art scene, amazing art being made, great artists, some great galleries. But as you say, Jane, I mean, they, the, the, the buyers of this art are of a level where they will travel all over to buy this stuff. So it's, it remains to be seen whether you can actually grow a more grassroots um, collector base. And I think that's a matter of time. They're going to have to invest some time in this. It's going to have to become a kind of regular occurrence like it did in London. Yeah, know? of course. But of course, I guess if Endeavour are involved with the kind of sort of talent that they are involved with, which, as we say, you know, sport and, you know, Hollywood and so forth, it may be that that combination of Endeavour and freeze is the thing that will make something happen. We'll see. But making it the place to go and the place to buy are often two different things. 
Let's talk about biennials. Um, you know, looking down the list of the very many biennials that we have this year, it seems like Venice has got the sort of clear run at being the major notable event of the year. Um, it, it's not this time surrounded by documentary and Munster as it was last time. Um, Ralph Rugoff is the artistic director and he, we know very well in London from the Hayward Gallery. I have admired many of his group shows, which makes me feel optimistic. I don't know about you guys. I've admired many of his group shows. He's also done some some great mixed film shows recently. Some of them I found a little bit clunky, I have to admit. Mm. The, the, the the figure show where every artist doing figurative work were bunched together. The um, architecture space shifter show, I'm not so crazy about. Yeah, but no, I I'm think, not either. I, mean, I know you are, Ben. So <laughs> I love we'll, it. we'll all agree to differ on that one. <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, he's a really competent director. He's a, he's a very smart man. I have to say, it was my cliche for the last five years saying to people, well, it's that Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. Ha, ha, ha. Now we do. And seeing it kind of trotted out as the title theme title for a biennale made me slightly roll my eyes but then maybe that's just me being being snooty I mean I think at least thank god he is engaging with the current situation which didn't happen last time at the last Venice biennale which seemed to almost studiously avoid all the craziness erupting across the globe so let's see how he manifests these strange times he's talking about it being more immersive more interactive but these t- these terms are bandied around with every biennale you know the thing is that the proof of the pudding I'm afraid really is the eye to eyeball to eyeball experience and so many biennales have looked great on the page and then not really stepped up in the reality and conversely some have actually looked a bit wobbly curatorially conceptually but actually worked out very well so I'm cautiously optimistic I'm glad he's engaging with our strange times let's see how it plays out yeah I mean I think I'm I'm fairly optimistic actually I think that Venice and Documenta particularly last year two years ago were pretty heavy going Documenta particularly was pretty heavy going it was indeed and it was the sort of art that we talked about at the time there was an enormous amount of documentation there was incredibly long um not very high production values films um uh, really there was a quite a lot of the kind of i'm sorry to be sort of fly but there was quite a lot of the sort of dripping tap school of videos so i'm i'm at least hopeful with ralph that we will get some sort of exciting things to look at i'm expecting a immersive more sensory experience but as you say the number of times i mean i thought last year's venice sounded great on paper i was a bit underwhelmed in the end when i saw it so who knows you've got to walk the fine line between immersive immediately engaging and just endlessly instagrammable you know and then you've got to walk the fine line with it having some meaning and not having to plow through endless documentation yeah and this is the challenge for curators now i think and i think you know if anybody ralph can step up to that plate and jane you you've become something of a biennale specialist because you've been writing about them and sort of analysing where they fit in in the whole kind of art culture. Do you see any sign of um, the sort of fad for biennials sort of fading away? Or No, not, not, not at all. I mean, we, we the, uh, some research came out, I think, last, uh, last year that had found, it was an academic research that had found there were sort of 320 biennials and there was a lot of discussion about what that means. I mean, in fact, there's two new ones this year, Strasbourg and Oslo. I mean, I suppose the thing that's worth mentioning, and, you know, Ralph talked about this quite uh, powerfully in Basel last year. It's worth remembering that at the end of the day, biennales are really about the local audience. The international jet set art world goes to some of these things. um, And 
and you know occasionally moans in the kind of way that only the super privileged can about the fact that they've had to get on another plane to go and see another biennale. Um, we but, coined we coined, we coined the term in the art newspaper biennialism, which yes. is this idea of this endless <laughs> you know thankless experience of visiting biennale after biennale. Yeah, yeah, but of course that's a very privileged position to be in. Um, for most of these biennales, they're actually for local audiences, and actually I think for a lot of these cities that they emerge in, um, the they're a great opportunity for local public to see international art or have their art of their own region presented in a new way to them. I mean, I think really it's up to Biennale directors themselves not to make identikit biennials and not to keep choosing the same artists. And again, you have to walk the fine line between, you know, generic Biennale, greatest hits, usual suspects, and too much kind of almost regional tourism going on, where, where, where you know, super curator flies in, goes, oh, look at this interesting place, let's look, oh, look how interesting it all is, you know, make something about the inter- slightly banally about the interestingness of it all. And then, as you say, the art circus moves in for three days, has lots of parties, moves out, and the locals are left thinking, what on earth? And I think... but. When it works, it can really regenerate. And I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, biennales are proliferating. It seems to me that art fairs are closing a bit, but let's not forget that stuff is bought and sold at biennales as well. They may not proclaim it, but there's quite a bit of ka-ching going on in the background of biennale pavilions as well. Very much so. Now, there are a number of notable anniversaries this year, really big ones, actually. Um, let's talk first about the Bauhaus 100th anniversary. Um, obviously, the Bauhaus is this uh, amorphous difficult to define art school that developed in Germany. Um, Louisa, what do you make of the 100th anniversary? What, what's being celebrated here? Well, I think what's being celebrated is this sort of the brand that is the Bauhaus. And as you say, it's a very amorphous thing. It was founded in Weimar in 1919. But when it was founded by Walter Gropius in the early days, it was quite a mystical, spiritual enterprise with people wearing sort of robes and eating weird food and sort of cathedral-like fragmented paintings and Feinegger getting all mystic- mystical with his crystalline woodcuts. You know, it was a very different enterprise to the kind of hard-edged manufacturing machine-based enterprise that it then evolved into. When it went to Dessau in the early 20s, where there's another museum opening up, um, it then became much more to do with manufacturing, mass production. The Russian the Russian lot came, came over, Maholinaj, El Lizitsky. You had the De Stijl guys, Mondrian, Van Dusburg coming from um, from Holland. And it became more hard-edged and a lot a lot different in its, in its preoccupations about, about modernism, about integrating all these different aspects, with Walter Gropius still at the helm. But of course there wasn't the technology actually to manufacture this stuff. It may have been all about bent steel furniture and you know geometric cradles and, and light, light fittings, but it wasn't actually able to make this stuff manufactured, mass-produced at that time. So a lot of the Bauhaus was really about the conceptual ideas as they shifted. And also Gropius at the helm, although he then took over from Mies van der Rohe, then took over later on, making it this brilliant brand, you know, where you had the Bauhaus, the name alone, which doesn't really mean a great deal, building house, you know, it, it, but it, it, it became became this whole thing that was synonymous with contemporary design. And I think that's what's being celebrated. We've got a big feature in it in the current art newspaper, the January issue, and that illustrates the very, very many events and museum openings. So we won't go into detail about them. Have a look online too. We'll have information online. But, but it's very notable that Germany is really celebrating it. And I think 
it's perceived in Germany that it's this has been long overdue. Yeah, and it's a major. I mean, yes, it has. You know, it had a very mixed, mixed sort of history. But I mean, you know, it was a major, major influential um, force throughout international art. And the fact that so many people came from across Europe and Russia to actually participate and, and contribute, you know, and then, then then spread the word elsewhere when everybody went off to America and spread the word, and you know, Van der Rohe took over. So architecturally, design-wise, conceptually, it's absolutely crucial and right to be celebrated. Now, another major anniversary is the 500th anniversary of Leonardo's death. Um, This is being marked again by a whole range of exhibitions across the world. Uh, But the major show, it seems to me, is the big Louvre exhibition, uh, which is a proper survey of Leonardo's career. Um, But there's been this interesting development, which which is actually covered in the current issue of the art newspaper again, um, which is that Italy is refusing to lend certain works. Jane, do you want to talk about that? Well, I think this is very unfortunate, to put it mildly. I mean, it's very clear that the Louvre has been um, planning its show for several years. Um, The National Gallery had one in London some years ago. And I think, you know, it's well known amongst the museum community when one institution is really mounting, you know, a big show. So most people have agreed to cooperate with the Louvre show. And of course, the museums in Italy were indeed intending to lend. So this has actually come from a political level. And I think it's it's a sort of worrying trend because there has always been, I think, this long collaboration between... UK, European, North American museums and and elsewhere. But this is a very established kind of network of museums that loan to each other regardless of what's going on in the wider political world. And I think it's a good thing. So I think it's an it's very unfortunate when politicians are, force, are stepping in and forcing or that sort of seems to be happening, sort of forcing institutions to not kind of honour the sort of natural, you know, way of, of doing museum business. Well, the whole kind of collegiate na- notion of, 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 you know, international intellectual property, the fact that, you know, Leonardo himself travelled all over the place, for heaven's sake. So, you know, why should his work not have a major representation in France, you know, where, where the Mona Lisa lives, for God's sake? You know, I mean, it's, it just seems completely, as you say, inappropriate, Jane, and, and ominously disturbing that this this could set a very dangerous precedent. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's worrying, isn't it, when everything becomes about identity, whether it's national identity or whatever identity we choose, because it starts to stop the kind of hands across the the, the, the sort of human divides. Yeah, <laughs> and exactly. opening other themes too, you know, opening other things. So you can actually mix up an assessment of Leonardo's work and different different institutions look at it in different ways. And if you've got this kind of dread cloak of identity, national identity or whatever, always taking precedence, it distorts everything, I think. Yes, and I would assume as well that, again, most of our listeners will know this, that, I mean, these things are also reciprocal. I'm sure the Louvre will have promised some, you know, sort of high profile stellar loans back to Italy, you know, next year, a couple of years time, whenever, um, as part of the kind of, you know, natural to and fro of, of, of lending, particularly with the most important works. The next anniversary we're going to focus on is the Rembrandt anniversary. It's 350 years since he died. Um, there are, again, international shows. One I wanted to point out is the Dulwich Picture Gallery show, which is coming up in October of 2019, which is called uh, Rembrandt's Light. There was a, a, a brilliant exhibition of, of Giuseppe di Ribera at Dulwich um, in the autumn, and I think it's still it's on. Still on. Um, and for me, this was a really important development because it seems to me that the Dulwich Picture Gallery has been putting on some very worthy and interesting shows, but rather punching below its weight. Its collection is astonishing, and it includes great works by Rembrandt, by Poussin, by Velasquez, by others. But 
it seems to have been focusing on rather minor artists recently. And I'm very pleased to see Ribera and now Rembrandt at the Dulwich Picture Gallery because it seems appropriate that those artists should be showing. It's this wonderful jewel of a gallery with this amazing collection. In the past, it did great shows like, you know, Cy Twombly and Poussin, as you say. Then it all went a bit quiet. And to have this Rembrandt show, I mean, the portrait, Rembrandt's portrait of his son Titus in the Dulwich Picture Gallery collection is one of my all-time favourite great works. And, you know, it's renowned as a great, great, great Rembrandt. There are also Rembrandt's circle there. I mean, other Rembrandt's own as well. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful chance of a focused, really intense and beautifully curated show. I'm very, very excited about this. Now, of course, inevitably, there'll be things at the Rembrandt House and everything. But I think that, you know, the, the real focus of this anniversary will be the Rijksmuseum. Uh, there are two shows that are particularly notable. Um, as well as that, I should say, of course, the great night watch painting is being restored and it will be restored in the museum in a glass box for the public to see i love that watching it happen i know it would be a fantastic process to watch and at the reichs museum there are these two shows one is called all the rembrandts and it is every painting by rembrandt in their collection every drawing by rembrandt in their collection and then 300 of the 1200 prints on display and i think this is really particularly notable because on because Rembrandt is particularly remarkable because of his ability to adapt to media and his his line his drawing line is remarkable his amazing detailed prints are some of the most exquisite prints ever made and then of course these extraordinary broad brush oils on canvas which are some of the great paintings of all time I can't think of any other artist that is as adept at all of the various forms of art that he applies himself to um, I don't know what you guys think well I just I you just said it all really I couldn't agree more and I love the tiny you know, the, t- the tiny detail of the prints you see them reproduced and they are so vivacious and animated with just the minimum amount of lines the economy the drawings as well I mean what a consummate draftsman they just live and zing off the page and and these great paintings where he makes paint do stuff that I think no other artist has ever been able to do as well ever. You know, the flesh, mortality, fabric, brocade, light and shade. I mean, I'm so excited about this. I can't wait. There will be this intriguing pairing later in the year in October of Rembrandt and Velasquez. And I think this to me wow. is like the most <laughs> mouthwatering show I've ever heard of. Um, it will actually include more artists than just Rembrandt and Velasquez. So there will be 12 paintings by each of them and they will be sometimes paired right next to each other but and the whole show seems to me to be a really progressive show in the sense that it's all about looking and it's about comparing the dutch and spanish schools and we're talking of course in the post-reformation era we're talking about protestant and catholic as well as these great schools of painting now for the last part of this we've chosen a couple of exhibitions each that we are particularly looking forward to in the rest of the year um Louisa, you want to talk about Dorothea Tanning at Tate Modern. It's a major retrospective for Dorothea Tanning's work. It comes from the reign of Sophia, but it's in expanded form, I think, at the Tate. There's going to be more works. She was a remarkable artist. Um, she started off as a surrealist, um, or never a signed-up member, but she was very influenced by the 1936 Alfred Barr surrealist show in New York. She was born She was born in the Midwest, where she said nothing happened but the wallpaper. Went to New York, saw this show. It was like a, a door opening for her. She had already studied um, looking at pre-Raphaelites and um, very detailed works of, of Renaissance artists and she evolved this extraordinary detailed sort of enamelled almost finish um, Max Ernst the great surrealist artist was recruiting for an all woman show for his then wife Peggy Guggenheim uh, went to see Tanning and saw her wonderful self portrait of her with her best breast bared and amazing sort of floating branch like um, cloak and 
fell in love with both the work and the woman. And this is, in a way, a blessing and a curse for Dorothea Tanning because, of course, being married to Max Ernst then for 30 years um, cast a long shadow over her own reputation. She went on to be the most remarkable painter. That The, the enamel crystalline version became much more um, washy and much more kind of uh, limpid and, and extraordinary works, always figurative, but of figures, dogs, creatures. Um, she had this wonderful quote saying, all is libido, nicely smothered. I was lucky enough to interview her in 1993 when she had a show in, in, in the UK and she was very obstinately independent. She went on then to make extraordinary, while she was living in Paris with Max Ernst, soft fabric sculptures. And some of you um, may have seen the, the, the great uh, Hotel du Pavot piece in the Pompidou Centre where literally the wallpaper of her youth exploded with extraordinary soft figures coming out of the walls, these amazing bodies and coming down the fireplace, this, this whole environment, this installation of soft sculpture in this room-like setting. So she was making this, her, her early needlework was you know, made into something much more subversive. And then all the time she was also reading, writing poetry, and later in her life in the 90s made these beautiful flower paintings. Again, you can, you can spot what kind of flower species they are, but they are also extraordinarily human and anthropomorphic and very sexual with great zinging colours. And she died at the age of 101 uh, with, with a volume of poetry actually published that year. So she was a remarkable woman. Jane, you're going to talk about a very, very different kind of, but, but, but equally very independent artist using a language which probably couldn't be further removed from Tennings. Yes, this is Charlotte Posenensky. Um, now, an artist I have to say that I didn't know, it's probably my ignorance, didn't know very much about until I saw the, her work in the, the Tate uh, when they opened the new extension in 2016. It was actually one of my favourite rooms. Sadly, it's now being used as a temporary exhibition space. And they had some minimalist works, including work by um, Lagier Clark. And in the middle of the room was this kind of sculpture that looked like a pile of galvanised steel ducting. And this is Charlotte Posenenske. I mean, I think she is less well known for a number of reasons. One is that um, she was working in Germany from the late 50s until, I think, 1968, when she actually gave up art and decided to become a sociologist because she wrote, uh, she, she sort of famously, as I now discover, wrote a letter, I think it was in Art International, where she said that um, she no longer believed that art um, would bring about social change. So she decided to go and do something different, be a sociologist, and she actually spent the rest of her career working with labour unions, so trying to bring about social change uh, that way. So not really been so much about her, and then... Last year, the Deer Foundation bought 155 of her works. Now, she does have work in in major museums, but again. So Deer are going to mount the first major retrospective of her work in America, and that's opening in March. I mean, I think this is very interesting because... Dear Beacon, I'm sure, again, many of the listeners know it, but it's this enormous factory about an hour and a half outside New York. And I think when I first went to see it in 2002, that there was only actually work by two women in the space. And it was Louise Bourgeois and Hannah Darboven from memory. Some of those exhibitions are permanent. The Louise Bourgeois is permanent and some of them are temporary. So there is going to be a large temporary exhibition devoted to Charlotte Charlotte Posenenske. And I think it's interesting because Deer clearly has now been looking to collect um, less well-known women minimalists. Because they're actually buying this, you know, over 100 of these works and owning them. So it's not just hosting the show. They're actually 
yep. acquiring the works as well. So it's a kind of double double commitment in a way. Absolutely. And it's going to focus, well, there was only really 12 years of work. It's going to focus on all the work she did in those 12 years. Um, but as I say, it's interesting because they've clearly sort of been thinking about this issue because they had, uh, they've now installed Anne Truitt. They had a Mary Course show last year. So they're definitely starting to, I suppose, set the record straight because, I mean, she did work alongside people like Judge. She was well known at the time. She's one of these people, well known, but in the period since her death, she's kind of slid under the radar. So talking about artists who've gone under the radar over the ages, the Prado is actually celebrating its 200th anniversary this year. And it's putting on this show of Sophonisba Anguissola and Lavinia Fontana, two artists from the Renaissance period who have who in their own time were actually very highly regarded and over the years again have been largely uh, forgotten and in recent years, I mean recent decades uh, realistically, been their reputations have been restored. I think this is a really notable moment actually and we were talking a lot last year actually about the way that the art world was making very deliberate attempts to balance up the gender balance in in uh, exhibitions and collections and it seems to me that this is a, a, a landmark moment for the Prado to put on this show in its anniversary year they're both ex- extraordinarily intriguing figures I think um, so for Nispo is by far the more famous of the two, very much an international artist. She met Michelangelo. Michelangelo gave her drawing lessons. Um, and she also then travelled to Spain and was in the court of Philip II. Um, and so she achieved sort of international fame in her own time. Lavinia is, an, is a really intriguing artist because she was married to an, a painter and bore 11 children, and yet he was the subservient artist in their studio. It was her that achieved great things, and uh, he was essentially her assistant uh, and helped bring up the children. And I think that this is a great moment to look at these two artists. Of course, there were still restrictions on women artists in that time, but both are renowned for portraiture, and Lavinia also was uh, a a very great uh, painter of religious subjects. So I think that will be a a really remarkable show. There are two exhibitions featuring women artists at the National Portrait Gallery in London that you wanted to talk about, Louisa. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I would just say the National Portrait Gallery have also been really pioneering, I think, over the last couple of years of not only mixing up the whole notion of identity, portraiture, what it means, but also foregrounding women. Tacita Dean had one of her great triumvirate shows at the National Portrait Gallery the other one was at the National Gallery and the Royal Academy. Also Gillian Waring and Claude Cahoon. What a brilliant pairing that was. And now they're continuing this very excellent strain by just integrating it into their programme. They're not going ta-da, women. It's just these two really good shows. One is of Elizabeth Payton, who's a, a portraitist working in America who came to the fore very much in the 90s with her lusciously painted, very gorgeous portraits of everyone from Kurt Cobain to Napoleon, um, to Prince William, to cultural heroes, to contemporary people. And these are going to be not only in the exhibition spaces of the National Portrait Gallery, but also she's been given, for the first time an artist has been able to do so, she's been given the whole run of the NPG. So she can put her works in the Tudor sections, in the 19th, 18th century sections. I think that will be very interesting just to mix up. Because, of course, portraits are flattering so often, and hers are gorgeously flattering, but kind of quite stylized at the same time. And I think those kind of conversations will be fascinating. And the other part of this women double whammy is um, the pre-Raphael, Light Sisters, which is 
actually bringing to the fore the unsung heroines of the pre-Raphaelite movement. We see them all over the paintings, long-haired, full-lipped, droopily, lying around or lying in water in the case of Miles Ophelia. And this is about the women behind this. Elizabeth Siddle, Fanny Eaton, Effie Millet, these people who actually weren't just models and muses, although some of them were, and significantly so. They were also sometimes painters in their own right. Lizzie Siddle was actually a, a, a poet and a painter, with Ruskin as one of her major patrons. So it's going to foreground these women, their work, their contribution, and even if they were muses and models, to show how actively important they were in shaping the vision of these blokes who've been always stealing the thunder so far. So I'm really looking forward to these two excellent shows running concurrently at the National Portrait Gallery in the autumn. Um, Jane, you wanted to talk about a show at Tate Britain of Frank Bowling's work. Yeah, well, I think what's interesting, I mean, we've, we've, we touched, of course, on the, the issue of women artists. Um, there's also very clearly been uh, a move across the art world to consider the ethnicity of artists, very much to look at people very much the same, actually, people who were well known at the time and for whatever reason have rather slid um, under the radar in the years since. Now, Frank Bowling is actually still alive. He's in his late 80s. He was born in Guyana um, he moved to New York which is where I think he gets associated now with the sort of great resurgence of interest in African American artists from the 60s, 70s and a lot of them, not all of them of course but a lot of them were working in an abstract um, fashion so I'm thinking of people like Jack Whitten and Sam Gilliam. So basically this is going to be a big retrospective of Frank Bowling's work. He is known in Britain. He has had work shown um, at the Tate before. This is at Tate Britain, I should add. But I think it's a great opportunity for us to see his work. I mean, he makes really luscious, doesn't he? Glorious. Luscious abstract work. But also very personal and very narrative, but also with the rigour of his time in America with the abstract influence there. So you can see this great cross-fertilisation. It's not a dilution, it's an enhancement of his work. There are all these different strains going through. Yeah, and there are also references I think to I mean he he, de- he definitely doesn't like to be categorised as, as, as a black artist and mm. I absolutely can understand and respect that but you can see that elements of history and memory I mean he sometimes uses textiles in his work that are reminiscent of those kind of uh, Dutch wax uh, batik type fabrics that were exported to, to Africa I mean again almost obliterated but there's touches his his uh, mother was a seamstress and there's often sewing in his work but but you have to look for that, don't you, Louisa? But then also every artist is a composite of their, of of their background. You know, I mean, Jackson Pollock with the wide open spaces and the, and the Jungian psychology and the Mexican mirrors. You know, they all bring lots of stuff in there and he brings his stuff amongst other things. And lastly, I'm just going to very briefly talk about the Francis Bacon exhibition at the Centre Pompidou in Paris, which opens in September. It's a an interesting survey because it's only the last 20 years of his life. And people tend to think of Bacon's great period as, as being the post-war period up to about 1971, which is when his Grand Palais show in Paris happened. Of course, the, the era that we're talking about begins with an absolute tragedy, which is the death of George Dyer, who's Bacon's lover, in his bathroom in the hotel in Paris two days before the opening of his Grand Palais retrospective. You know, and this was such a seminal event for Bacon because it was, he said, if the French like my work, then I feel I've succeeded. You know, it's such a landmark moment for him. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this is presented. It's very much foc- focusing on his literary Which connections. Which is really interesting because you always think about Bacon rolling around the colony room drunk, not being a huge bibliophile. Exactly. And so this is six literary figures, including Aeschylus and including uh, T.S. Eliot and, and Michel Leris. So it will be a fascinating study of 
Bacon in the context of writing, but also in a really searching period of his work. So, in chronological order, those shows are Dorothea Tanning is at Tate Modern between the 27th of February and 9th of June. Charlotte Posanenska is at Dia Beacon in New York between the 8th of March and September the 9th, and at MACBA in Barcelona in October before travelling to Dusseldorf and Luxembourg next year. Frank Bowling is at Tate Britain in London between the 31st of May and the 26th of August. Francis Bacon, en toutes lettres, is at the Centre Pompidou between the 1st of September and the 20th of January next year. Elizabeth Payton is at the National Portrait Gallery in London between the 3rd of October and the 5th of January next year. And the Pre-Raphaelite Sisters is also at the National Portrait Gallery between the 17th of October and the 26th of January next year. Sofonispa Anguissola and Lavinia Fontana are at the Prado in Madrid between the 22nd of October and the 2nd of February next year. And with that, (laughs) we bring the conversation to an end. Thank you, Louisa. Thank you, Jane. Thank you. Thank you. You can read our special magazine all about the year ahead with the January issue of The Art Newspaper. Why not subscribe to the print edition at subscribe.theartnewspaper.com. And that's all for this week. Please do subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already, and you can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio. That's at T-A-N Audio. The main art newspaper Twitter account and Facebook are at The Art Newspaper, and you can find us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Thanks to Georgina, Victoria, Francis and Tadeus, to Louisa and Jane, and thank you for listening. We'll be back next week when we'll be exploring Condo, the collaborative initiative that sees lots of London galleries hosting those from overseas. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams. Find what defines you at bonhams.com.